Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's interview is with Trisha Cummings, the administrator of the Edgewood Center, a 150-bed family-owned nursing home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Trisha received both her bachelor's and master's degrees from the Department of Health Management and Policy here at UNH. Trisha's career story shows how early job experiences often generate skills that become critical later in one's career, and that working hard every step of the way has its payoffs. In this podcast, we talk about the road Trisha took to find her true passion, taking care of older adults. We also discuss how someone becomes a licensed nursing home administrator, the services offered by long-term care facilities, the challenges and opportunities facing long-term care today, and conclude with a discussion of opportunities for the early careerist who might be interested in pursuing a career in long-term care. The full podcast is approximately 83 minutes, which is a bit longer than our usual podcast. However, an abridged version is also available that only focuses on Edgewood's service structure and the challenges of long-term care and is approximately 35 minutes in length. Welcome to The Forge, Tricia. Thank you. I want to congratulate you on being the first alumnus of the Health Management and Policy Program to appear on The Forge. It's kind of exciting. It's very exciting. So. Speaking of uh, University of New Hampshire, how did you come to go to the University of New Hampshire and how did you choose to major in health management and policy? Okay, well, first of all, I'm a local girl. Okay. I grew up in Northampton, New Hampshire. Uh, my family has a history of attending UNH. Uh, my mother, as an older learner, uh, went to UNH. Uh, my older brother, as well as my older sister, as well as a second brother um, also went to UNH, so it mm -hmm. seemed natural that I would apply. Family legacy. Exactly. Okay. And did you apply as a health management and policy major, or did you come in and then kind of discover it? Yeah, so I actually came in as a health management and policy major, and I think at the time it was a relatively new major, and um, maybe isn't the best answer, but it is the right answer. The correct answer is that I was sitting at the dinner table on a Sunday evening, uh, getting ready to complete my application, and my brother and my sister both said, oh, you want to pick a major. You don't want to go in undeclared. you got to pick a major. And I knew that I wanted something in healthcare. I just wasn't quite sure what. I think at the time I was kind of toying around the idea of um, becoming a physical therapist. And um, I very much remember that conversation where my brother said, you know, I've heard that health management and policy is an up-and-coming major. You might want to consider that. And I said, you know what? That sounds great. And I checked the box. And uh, thankfully, uh, as soon as I took the first class, I think it was Introduction to Healthcare Systems or something like uh -huh. that as a, a gen still, ed. And it's still, and it's still the there. Ones, HMP 401, yeah. I think it's it was. Right. That's right. Um, I knew immediately upon taking that class that I had made the right decision, and I've honestly had no regrets okay. ever since. How did you decide? Um, how did you know you wanted to do healthcare? Did, did, is your family involved? Yeah, in healthcare? good question. So my mom's a nurse. Okay. And. Um, have just spent, my mother is just a caregiver by nature, and um, she was a school nurse here in Portsmouth actually for about 30 years. And so traveling with her, you know, to the high school and seeing what she, you know, had accomplished in her career. And also, um, my mom has um, had a second job 
as a uh, nurse in a long-term care facility. And so oh, that was really okay. my introduction into nursing homes. So you had seen those, seen that environment already? Definitely, yeah. Okay. And my mother's also one of those people who's just always had what I refer to as a person, you know, somebody that she's just kind of adopted and just, you know, taken extra special care of. And typically speaking, those people have been older adults. Okay. And so just watching her and knowing that um, I really liked being in that kind of environment. Okay. So uh, one of the things that is required for health management policy majors is to do an internship mm -hmm. in between their junior and senior years. Did, mm -hmm. Where did you do your internship and how did that influence kind of your, where you wound up? Yeah, good question. So at the time I was in the major, the internship was actually the second semester of your junior year. So okay. it was a full 16 weeks full-time. And I was lucky enough to be accepted at Exeter Hospital. And so I had a, just a wonderful experience there. And I think why it was a wonderful experience is I just wanted to be exposed to as much as I could be exposed to while I was, you know, in that learning environment. I do think as a benefit, it was an unpaid position, which I know sometimes might not be very popular. Um, however, looking back, I can see that that was an advantage because then I didn't feel like I had to be productive in the way that I was making a paycheck, but productive in the way that this was truly just a learning opportunity. And so I took full advantage of that, you know, having or being connected with the CEO of the hospital opened up doors. Right. So I was able to um, watch surgery firsthand, you know, right there in the surgical so suite. Was the CEO your preceptor? She was. She was. Okay. She was. It was oh. um, Kevin Callahan. Okay. So title-wise, I guess maybe I'm might not be speaking um, correctly. He was there, you know, okay. and he may have been sort okay. of the CEO of the whole hospital uh -huh. system, uh -huh. but at the time they had a separate oh. administrator for the hospital, oh, Barbara okay. Grillo. Okay. And so she was my preceptor. Okay. And again, that just opened up doors. And so um, I had the opportunity to watch surgery. I spent time in the emergency department. I got to watch a birth and certainly interviewed really just a whole host of people in the hospital about their jobs and you know, certainly worked on projects and, you know, things of that nature as well. But right. I felt like it was a time for me to just really open up my eyes to see, yeah. um, you Sounds know, like really took, what really went took on. advantage of it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was a great experience. Okay. And I think you mentioned <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in an email mm -hmm. that you also worked here while you were in. I did, yeah. Okay. And so oh, how did that, that come about? Yeah, that it's a great question. Major, uh, definitely related to the major. So, again, the internship was that second semester of my junior year and just seeing, you know, what the possibilities would be, thinking it would be a good time for me to add um, something to my resume, you know, thinking about graduation coming up, you know, in another year. And so I decided that I wanted some more healthcare experience on my resume. They kept me on also at Exeter Hospital in the emergency department um, as a registration clerk, which looking back was probably one of the most interesting jobs that I've had um, because it was on the 3 to 11 shift during the summertime on weekends um, in a summertime kind of community. So it was, it was super interesting. But I responded to an ad for a part-time rehab aid here at Edgewood Center and just, you know, kind of on a whim applied and um, ended up getting the job. Okay. And so started working, you know, maybe two days a week, um, helping residents here with ambulation and range of motion and just augmenting, you know, the professional rehab staff with whatever they might need. You know, at that time, you didn't need a certification, you know, to do that job. So I was just, you know, trained on the job and, you know, fell in love, you know, with the facility, with the residents and um, continued to work here while I finished out my degree. Okay. 
But your first job, actually, upon graduation Mm -hmm. from UNH with your HMP major was with Harvard Pilgrim as Mm -hmm. an insurance underwriter. So you jumped into the business side rather than the patient care side. Was this the kind of work you actually expected to do as a result of the major, you know, uh, when you signed up for the major, or or how did that come about? Yeah, well, I remember kind of being in angst a bit about what I was going to do and feeling like I needed to, you know, get, you know, quote, unquote, a real job. And honestly, just putting applications out everywhere. I think initially upon graduation, I did have this expectation that I would go to work in a hospital and I would just immediately go into a management position just because, you know, why wouldn't somebody think I could do that? Um, And I actually, it was a conversation I had with Kevin Callahan. I went back to Exeter Hospital again, just sort of looking for some career advice. And I remember him saying, you know, Tricia, don't worry so much about kind of where you're going right now. What's important right now is that you get a job and that you you know, you just gather as much experience in that first job that you get to take you to the next job. And I was really happy that I, I did take that advice. And at the time, it was Harvard Community Health Plan, you know, before all the mergers. Okay. And they called me down for an interview for a position that I didn't initially ap- apply for, but they had kept my resume on file and called me back um, and took a job as a non-group underwriter. Um, which truthfully I absolutely hated, um, <laughs> hated, hated, uh-huh. hated, um, because I was leaving an environment like here at Edgewood where every day I'm interacting, you know, with residents and their families and, you know, every single day feeling like I'm going home, you know, that I really made a difference to somebody, a substantial difference. So I went from that type of an environment into an office situation where people are applying for health insurance. And a lot of times people are applying because they need health insurance. For instance, you know, if a person is pregnant, as a simple example, and they're applying for non-group insurance, that's an automatic reason for denial. And so my first job, I was responsible for those easy no's, you know, either the easy no's or the easy yeses. And um, that was really hard for me at first, you know, not only from an environmental standpoint, office, cubicle, phone, file type of situation, to then delivering news to a person who you know, needs help. You and know, you're I saying, oh, we're not going to help you. We can't help you. Yeah. 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 And I get the whole rationale behind that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't necessarily an easy transition for me. Okay. So you stayed there for three and a half years. What was, you know, aside from kind of the initial mm-hmm. reviews, what mm-hmm. did you, what, what is an underwriter doing? Yeah. Beyond? So basically an underwriter's job is to make sure that the insurance company isn't accepting undue risk basically, number one. And then number two, that I went from the non-group side that would probably more specifically relate to the risk of, you know, medical risk, to the group side, which then combines risk with pricing. And so in that position, I was responsible for reviewing new groups that were coming or being proposed by the marketing department. So there was a lot of interface now with different people and making a decision about whether or not we should accept the risk of this new group, and if so, then what should we price? And then also doing renewals, so looking at some utilization information with different groups, larger groups, and determining what we should be charging for their new renewal. And then from there, I also learned how to present that information to larger groups. So the marketing department often brought me out with them and I would explain to an employer group why their rates were being increased to thus and such amount. And I will honestly say it was excellent experience. So just kind of going back to the Kevin Callahan conversation, 
I think in the three and a half years that I was at um, Harvard, that really, I, I feel like I did take advantage of just trying to learn what I could learn that would then carry me to the next job. And, you know, looking back now, I can see how that happened in the moment, you know, when you're there thinking, I really want to, you know, instead of going A, B, C, I just want to go from A to C. Right. Which is what you, a lot of young yeah. people kind of expect. Exactly, right? exactly. But, yeah. you know, looking back, I can see, you know, as even recent, as recently as this week, having our own health insurance renewal here, that experience comes back to me during those conversations. But that was actually a very a pretty interesting part of the job. Yeah. You know, going out to groups like the Boston Globe or Harvard University and, you know, explaining why they were getting a 20% increase to their health insurance. The piece I think that the health management degree helped me with that is I was in an environment in the underwriting department where there are a lot of people who are real number crunchers who had more of a degree in accounting or math or, you know, people who might even be pursuing an actuarial, you know, degree or certificate. It's an insurance agency. Insurance agency. I think the health management background for me helped balance the ability to look at numbers and be able to communicate to other groups, specifically with the marketing department or with those employer groups to help people understand the numbers behind, you know, the method to the madness, so to speak. Right, right. Okay. So you stayed there, like I said, for three and a half years, Mm -hmm. and then you uh, decided to leave Harvard Pilgrim and you went to a firm called Medbill. Yep. What did you do for Medville? Right. So in between, I should also say, in between at Harvard um, is when I also went back to UNH and received my master's degree. Okay. Okay. And so that was also part of my plan to say, I, I, I want to move on from here. What do I need to help me move on from here? And so... Okay. So you did an um, MHA. I did an MHA, yes. You don't have that program anymore. Correct. So Correct. what was what is what is an MHA? What was the MHA program like at UNH at so that time? So at the time, it was in the health management department, and it was a master's of health administration. And because they were relatively new, they were able to count my undergraduate degree as my first year. Okay. I think you had to you had to be enrolled within maybe two years or three years of graduation for that to count. And um, it was an executive style program, so I could continue to work um, and. Fridays and Saturdays off and went to school. Um, so it was fairly intensive, yeah. um, but it was a great program. It was residential, which was a little different for me because I commuted um, okay. during my undergraduate. So I made a point of going and staying for those weekend um, retreats, so to speak. So that degree helped me to move on from okay. Harvard community for okay. sure. Okay. So when I went to work for Medbill, um, it was a company, Medbill is a subsidiary of Coastal Healthcare Group. And that company hires emergency room physicians, typically in areas that have a hard time finding emergency room physicians, so either very rural hospitals or real inner city hospitals. So my side of the business, the billing side of that, where we would bill for the physician services within the emergency department, and then we would determine how much of a subsidy the hospital needed to provide to staff the emergency department because almost always the hospital is subsidizing for the staffing of the physicians within the emergency room. Okay. And so it combined my experience at Harvard Community where I was pricing, you know, new groups. It also allowed me to then kind of get my foot in the door in a medical institution and be looking at medical records and making a determination about um, what the utilization would be within this emergency room for the physician visits what we would be able to collect, and then what they would have to charge for that subsidy. At that particular um, company, I also was able to do a lot of traveling. So part of that was in my training, because they were a national company and, you know, going to very 
obscure um, right. hospitals. Rural or inner city. Exactly. Right. It, was, okay. it was super yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, and then the other part of it is more, it was more my territory, you know, being able to go to uh, hospitals that were then more in my territory. Okay. So you got to see a lot of hospitals. <laughs> I and, did. And, and see yeah. how they operated. I did, yeah. That's a unique opportunity. Yeah, to, it was super to... interesting, um, you know, even going in this very uh, small hospital in Tennessee where they were literally waiting, you know, for the local boy, so to speak, to come home to become the surgeon for the hospital. Oh, so it was wow. just a very interesting experience, just to open my eyes up differently, you know, than how, how it's I different in different areas. And exactly. Different organizations yep. operate differently. Needs. And yeah. of course, you had uh, uh, had your experience as a emergency room. Exactly. Floor, right? Correct. So I mean, oddly <laughs> enough, yeah, when you think about again the experience you get in one job that can lead you to the next. Right. And Absolutely. I'm sure that was part of the interview questions. Sure. And could speak to operations within an emergency department and being comfortable you know yeah. part of it is just being comfortable in your environment and, and so that would certainly go because when they were looking at a new account I would have go in you know to the emergency department and literally go through their billing you know and sit down in a room and, and, and look at all that right. so so you spent about a year I spent it roughly about a year there was actually probably a little less than a year okay. which is probably the one thing you know if I was now I'm in the position of interviewing people yeah. I would probably question that and say what was up with that. So part of it is I was not 100% sure about the company. Okay. They, you know, they seemed like a solid company, but they in this area they were from the south. They were based out of Durham, North Carolina. So the branch of the company that I was working for was here actually in Portsmouth. Okay. Um, they opened up an office downtown and they had a really hard time breaking into the, you know, for lack of a better word, the north, you know, for whatever reason. I think the healthcare system in this particular area, Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, presented a real challenge for their business. And um, I could see that things weren't necessarily growing the way that they had wanted growth to happen. And so I was really more worried about my future, you know, and, sure. you know, where could this go? And again, you know, seeking out the advice of different people in my life. I happened to see an ad in the paper for director of social services and admission director here at Edgewood and called my old boss, who was the rehab director, uh, Susan Kyler. And I remember saying to her, you know, Susan, I feel like I'm at a crossroads. I'm thinking about, you know, my future. She was a person I greatly respected. And in that conversation said something like, you know, I was actually even thinking of applying for this job that I saw. What do you think? And I remember her saying, you know what, I think that would be really great. You know, I I feel like you should come back and and apply. We'd love to talk to you. Which now, sitting in my seat now, I can I can see why she did that. You know, I can see why I might do that for somebody who had worked here, who moved on, who, you know, was thinking about something different. And so I guess I would say, in that sense, maybe the rest is history, but oh. applied, came in, you know, talked about my experience I had gotten. and. So the position that you actually applied and eventually got mm-hmm. was, was what again? It was the Director of Social Services and Admissions Director. And so in that position, the primary focus of that job was really being the admissions liaison to the facility. Okay. So again, it was more, I think the experience I received at MedBill, now looking back, I can see was a step closer for this particular job as the admissions director because in that job I was going out to the hospital and various providers and reviewing medical records to see if that particular individual was a good fit uh, for whatever bed we might have open here at Edgewood. And so the experience at MedBill, even though it was short, provided me 
you know, with that experience of looking at medical records and sort of making decisions about, you know, what a billing in that okay. case, but suitability in this case. Okay. So how how big was uh, Edgewood at that at the time? You at came the back? time, um, we, has it changed much? It's definitely changed for sure. I think okay. what's changed actually is not our size. You uh-huh. know, I will say that we. We're licensed for 156 beds at that time. We're still licensed for 156 beds. What's different is at that time, we were probably running with about 156 residents. Today, we run with about 135. Um, so the, the difference is really more about the mix of the types of services um, that we provide. And, and that has really been as a result of the changing healthcare climate. So at the time, I'd have to go back in my memory I think the hospitals may have been relatively new with DRG mm-hmm. reimbursement. And, I mean, I definitely remember at the time we were the only game in town, so we were the only skilled facility in Portsmouth. So we were either Portsmouth, Dover, or Exeter. So people at Portsmouth Hospital literally at the time would wait in the hospital for Edgewood to have a bed to open up. And so life was much more predictable back then. I would know. I have a discharge coming up on Wednesday. It's Monday. I can go to the hospital. I can see who might be ready on Wednesday. They would wait for that bed to be open on Wednesday. I would have known who's coming in a day and a half ahead of time. I would have met that person, met the family, coordinated everything, and then they come to Edgewood. Okay. Today, things happen much more rapidly. The, the competition is much more uh, fierce, so to speak. We're not the only game in town. So the competition, by, by that you mean other other skilled nursing other facilities, skilled nursing facilities. That have the ability to, to, to take these patients exactly. from the hospitals. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Absolutely. And so decisions are made much more in the moment. I mean, we may come in the morning with, you know, no available beds, and then two people decide they're going home, and then the hospital's given us three referrals we never heard of before before today. And so... Yeah, the years of you know being able to schedule an admission—it's really almost laughable at this point. Like you never know a day and a half ahead of time. Okay. You're often just knowing right in the moment and needing to make those decisions, you know, right then. Can you talk? You mentioned the idea of a DRG. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that is and why would that have changed the relationship between the skilled mm-hmm. nursing facility and the hospital? Yep. So <clears throat> sure. So my understanding is that um, DRG is diagnostic related groups and. Um, changing the way the hospital is reimbursed so that they were re- they are reimbursed more in a, in a global is the right term, but basically kind of a lump sum based on the discharge diagnosis of the individual at the hospital. And so if the person stays there 10 days or three days, I don't know if it's still the same, but at the time, it basically the reimbursement was the same. And so when they changed to DRGs, the motivation or the financial incentive was to move that person out of the hospital sooner. And so the days of a person waiting in the hospital for Edgewood to have a bed, just those days quickly came to an end with the changing reimbursement. And frankly, it's better for the patient anyway. Overall, I would say improvements, you know, the competitive environment, it's all good. You know, it's all, I think, patient has definitely benefited. There's no question. Additional choice is a good thing for the consumer, as an example, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's not a bad thing, you know, to move a person on from the hospital to a setting like ours and to home sooner. You know, everything happens quicker. Right. So a skilled nursing facility, what mm-hmm. does that do? What's the, why, why the handoff yep. from the hospital to a skilled nursing yep. facility? So it's really a bridge often between the hospital and home. I think the benefit from the patient is it's often sort of a little graduation, so to speak, you know, from an acute care setting where the focus, you know, then this is just my perspective only, but I think the focus is about 
you know, that immediate situation that brought the person to the hospital, the fractured hip or the pneumonia or the stroke or whatever it was that happened at home that landed a person in the hospital. That's the focus of that hospital stay. And then when a person is stabilized, then it's really, it's appropriate that that person then go to an, another setting where then they can carry that care forward. You know, what's been done to stabilize the person, but now what are we going to do to help bring that person to the next level? Whether that next level is home or a different care setting, or in some cases, whether that care is in a long-term care setting. Um, it's really that bridge. Mm -hmm. And so this, the skilled nursing facility is a Medicare term. And so Edgewood has participated in the Medicare program, really, I think, since we were initiated, our services initiated in 72. I think we've pretty well participated in Medicare since, you know, way back then. Okay. And um, just refers to a level of care for an individual and their ability to access the Medicare system you know, okay. while they're here. So you, you were the director of admissions mm -hmm. and... Rehabilitation. Is that what you a social services oh, sorry, director. Social services. Yes. So the other aspects of, of what you were doing yeah. include what? So basically would include the, you know, kind of social work needs of an individual. I wasn't the social worker per se, but I was in a position now of supervising the social work function for the facility. So needing to really become more involved with what that means, you know, resident rights, what is the role of the social worker from a, you know, what we might think of more traditionally as a supportive role for a psychosocial supportive role for our residents to also the financing side of it, you know, helping a person access benefits um, that they would have available to them and helping, you know, the facility manage that care planning assessments, that end of things. Okay. And so how long did you do that for? Might have been about a year. Okay maybe less than a year when I was in that role, okay. that you know I knew I had my mind into doing an administrator and training. Okay. And so even when I applied for the position, thought this is then one more step closer to really where I want to be. Okay. Um, and I should back up because when I was at Harvard Community, when I left Edgewood, I knew pretty much immediately that I always wanted to come back into long-term care. Oh. Like I think when I first graduated, from UNH, I had this idea that I really always wanted to be in a hospital. Um, my experience here as a rehab aide, at the time I might not have known it then, but when I left here I knew it, that it really showed me that this is setting is really where I wanted to be. So, What was it about it that made you so sure about, about your future? I... I or really drew you because it, you it's didn't the get people. To it yeah, okay. so I would say definitely the people, the residents specifically, the older adults, the families. The it's it's really it's a passion. I, it's it's a calling. I, I don't know how else to say it except okay. I don't think again. I I mean I knew I loved my job as a rehab aide, but it, I didn't know that at the time this was really where I wanted to be until I left and thought oh, how can, how is it that I can get back there? Like what what can I do to get back there? And I. I'm finding myself, as I'm saying this to you, realizing that I, I'm a person who has sought out advice over the years because I remember going back to UNH and having conversation with professors, you know, about yeah. how can I get from, again, that A to C, where, how can I do that? And I remember having the conversation about how that master's degree may help me bridge that gap. Um, I can definitely see that it did. Okay. Um, I think, it, you know, I, I felt at the time in the insurance world I was doing very well, you know, I, I, I believe that I was well respected, I, you know, I, I felt that when I was there and I certainly received that feedback. So I, I could have seen my career, you know, going in that direction, 
it just isn't where I wanted to go. And I felt like, you know, I was going off on my, to the left, so to speak, and I really wanted to be over, instead of left field, I wanted to be in right field. And needed something to bring me there. And, you know, again, the master's degree helped me to do that. So when I made that application back, you know, to Edgewood, it was, it was a lateral move. I, I didn't go up the ladder, you know, salary wise. It was definitely a, just an even exchange, okay. um, which was really, really okay with me because I knew what I was getting was opportunity. And I was coming back into a setting that I just really loved. And so for me, I guess professionally, if you were to look at like job grade or whatever, however you want to evaluate that, it was probably more of a lateral move, but it really wasn't for me personally. But it was in the right direction. It was definitely in the right Back direction. Back the left field. Or it, right, right field, field. yeah. Whatever it was you exactly. wanted to be in, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. And so, so again, thinking, oh, this, maybe they would let me, you know, do an administrator in training. And so I think it, maybe I was about a year in the job or maybe not even quite. And um, I asked, would this be ever possible, you know, for me to do an administrator in training? And... And Patty Ramsey, who's the owner, current owner, at the time was the licensed administrator as well, said, of course, you know, absolutely. We would always want to give, you know, opportunity to someone who's wanting to take advantage of that. And, you know, she allowed me to to pursue my administrator in training. So, okay. So what is an administrator in training? So an administrator in training is uh, by regulation um, in order to be licensed as a nursing home administrator. In addition to other requirements, an individual has to complete an administrator in training program. The program varies from state to state. In New Hampshire, the program is a 12-month program. In other states, it can I know that in Massachusetts and Maine, it's six months. It may be as small as three months in other states, but I'm not totally familiar with that. But in New Hampshire, they're pretty strict at keeping to 12 months. And so the idea behind that is that you would basically take that period of time and learn what you need to learn in order to be able to function as as an administrator. Things to include regulation, nursing home operations, just the variety of issues that might come up in the course of time. And I think the idea behind the 12 months is it, and I can see that now again looking back, it would be hard to experience the variety of issues that come up in a three-month period of time because the variety of issues that come up are so vast that it's likely that it would take 12 months before that issue might come up. It might be three years before the issue comes up, but I'm thinking that's why a 12-month period. Okay. And do you take an exam as well? Yes, you do. So there's both a federal exam as well as a state exam that individuals need to take. And even backing up further than that, when you're interested in pursuing, the Board of Examiners for Healthcare Administrators will send you a packet. And in there, it will include a checklist. And the checklists are all of the things that you're to learn during your administrator and training period. And your preceptor signs off that you, in fact, learned these areas. There's also a course requirement um, areas that you need to have formal study in. The health management degree satisfied all of those requirements. In addition to that, there are things like a criminal background, letter of reference, you know, application that needs to then be submitted to the board. And then the board of examiners approves your application, and then you're ready to sit for the state and the federal exam. Obviously, the federal exam would carry state to state, and the state exam, for obvious reasons, so varies. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And at the time, it was offered, I think, twice a year. Now, I think with technology, I think they can administer the exam on a rolling basis. Okay. So this is a a status rather than a particular position, or is it a particular position? 
No, I would I would consider it like um, similar to being a licensed nurse. Okay. So the licensure travels with you as opposed to a position within a facility. So theoretically, you could be a licensed nursing home administrator and not be currently working, I guess, as a as an administrator that you know okay. would travel with you. So it's a credential that, it's you, a credential. that yeah. you get rather, exactly. than, rather than a particular position. Exactly. Okay. So you were interested in getting this credential. You were yes. still working in the admissions director yes. position. Yes. And so how did that, how did your experience and your in, internship opportunity, mm-hmm. how did that integrate with your day-to-day duties? Yeah, that's a good question. So you got to put in your own time. Okay. With anything else, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and I was thinking, well, you know what, really, when when other people were going out at nighttime, I wasn't. You know, I, I was studying or I was trying to be here learning beyond, you know, my regular full-time job to be able to learn the things I needed to learn to be an administrator. So there's definitely a little bit of personal investment that has to be put forth, um, which I think is important, you know, for anything. But but that was important to me, so it was worth it. So who, who was your preceptor? Was My that... preceptor was Pat Ramsey. Okay. So there's some so requirements you know. about who can be a preceptor and the size of the facility that you can do your administrator and training in. Okay. Um, certainly the length of time, as I mentioned, the number of hours, that kind of thing. So what did she tell you you had to do, or how did did you organize the the internship experience? You know, it's a good question. So the the information from the Board of Examiners helps you kind of walk through that, because you have, like, there'll be a statement about, like, you know, example might be financial management, and there's probably, I have to go back in my memory now, but I'm sure there's some kind of statement like that the applicant has um, a thorough knowledge of you know, Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement. I mean, it probably doesn't say exactly this, but something along those lines, you know, that would that would verify that the person applying, you know, to sit for the exam has um, been exposed to, has spent time learning about reimbursement issues and financial integrity and you know, that end of the nursing home operation. There's also a clinical side as well. And in fact, again, you know, that experience that then helps you get that next job, going back to that theme, I was actually able to waive three months of the AIT based on my clinical experience as the rehab aide. What is AIT? The AIT is the administrator in training. Uh, okay, so, so three months of the 12-month uh, training period. Was waived. Oh, okay. And so I had to apply for that to explain that I had worked at Edgewood. I worked as a rehab aide. I had gained this experience as a rehab aide. And okay. based on that, would you consider waiving and the, the board can three do months? That. And the board can do that. My experience with the board is they almost will never waive more than three months. And so I I appreciate the way New Hampshire handles that. Okay. Uh, So you started pursuing this this internship role while you were the admissions director. Yes. And how did did your career path progress from there? From there. So from there, um, well, first and foremost, I think with any job, you need to prove yourself. You know, you need to, to be competent. And, you know, again, being in this position that I'm in now, I, I can see how important that is, you know, how important a person's integrity, dependability, you know, personal effort really means to leaders as they're evaluating who they want to provide opportunity to. All of those things really matter. And so, so there was some kind of dovetailing because at the time being in my position, I was also being exposed to operations within the nursing home. That's a department head level position. So now I was going to department head meetings. I was learning even just through osmosis, how the nursing department operates, what's happening in food service. You know, here at Edgewood, when a person is interested in learning about other areas of the business, we're all for that, you know, and showing interest in wanting to learn about operations in general, 
it was sort of like a blank canvas, you know, for me to be able to learn. And then I, at one point or another, I was promoted to be the associate administrator of Edgewood. And okay. so in that, then I was just exposed a little bit further. I think I might have then shared call, being on call with okay. Patty, who was the administrator. So from an administrative standpoint, opening up just more opportunities for me to ex be exposed to different situations. So now we're using administrator not as a credential, but an mm -hmm. actual position. As a position. Okay. Describe describe a bit the the, the organization of Edgewood then, since, mm -hmm. because you started to talk about there's some departments. Yep. Um, so give give us a sense yep. of kind of so what is the hierarchy and and, and structure of, yep. of the organization? So I think probably similar to other long term care facilities, um, it's pretty flat. Okay. So we have an administrator who is the person who's basically overall responsible for the operations and maintaining you know compliance with regulations and so forth. Then there are roughly about uh, 11 or 12 department heads that report to the administrator and then managers and supervisors within those departments that report to the department head. Okay. Most of the department heads are working positions and some not so much. Like the director of nurses is not a, you know, she's, she doesn't take a med card every day. She's more in a supervisory leadership role sure. as opposed to, uh, as opposed to our child care director who may teach in one of the classrooms during part of the day as an example. But basically, that's really it. I mean, that's your okay. management team. Okay. And so from, from my perspective, the folks within the department head group are really extensions of administration. So um, we try very hard here to have a level of consistency with leadership and philosophy and adherence to just different compliance issues amongst the department head team so that any one of us could address certain issues or be aware of how things should be done, so to speak, and to just help um, throughout the whole building. Okay. I should also back up, because we're independently owned, then we have an owner who's, you know, really, who I report to, okay. who, to our benefit, is also here every day. So at the time that I came back to work here, the, we had two owners of the facility, um, Patty and David Ramsey, brother and sister. Their father built the facility in 72. They took over the ownership of the facility in 85. Mm -hmm. um, Patty was the administrator um, at that time, and David was also one of the owners here also every day. And then Patty was the administrator until I believe it was 95 when I became the administrator, and she maintained her ownership status and also was here pretty much every day. She was raising a family, so that uh, changed her dynamic a little bit. And then in 2003, she became the sole owner of Edgewood. And so Patty and I, I would say, really, we complement each other. She's also a licensed administrator and okay. has maintained that status. So okay. we really, again, complement each other in that role and in just the leadership. Of the so you, you share leadership tasks? We share leadership, yeah, okay. for sure. Okay. Yeah. How did, you said you, you were really, you were sure, reasonably sure, even before you graduated, that you wanted to ultimately be in long-term care. You mm -hmm. took that kind of yeah, the uh, detour. <laughs> detour into insurance yeah. uh, and operations, but you made your way back. But there's lots of opportunities in long-term care. Mm -hmm. Why did you stay at Edgewood? That's a great question. Because certainly once you got your credential yeah. as, a, as a licensed nursing home administrator, mm -hmm. opportunities must have sure and probably still do. Yeah, why, yeah, why, sure, why, absolutely. Why, why stay here? Well, so I guess first and foremost, Edgewood is a very special place, and I think I feel confident in saying if you talk to 
many, many, many people here, they would have a similar reaction. Um, I think I could get emotional, you know, talking about why I love this place so much. And certainly my relationship with Pat Ramsey, the owner, goes far beyond, you know, a employee-employer kind of relationship. It's uh, definitely very um, a deep connection. And I just don't think that you can replicate that always. And for me, that that need, there's certainly the job and there's what I love doing and being with the residents and all of that. And yeah, I could probably get all of that in a different nursing facility because, you know, when I visit other nursing facilities, I love being there too. Um, but I think it's about the people that I'm able to work with here that really would tie me deeply to Edgewood. I was having a conversation with Dr. Thomas, I the Eden Alternative, nephew Bill Thomas. Okay. Um, he He's a very interesting person in and of himself, but he was locally, uh, he was here um, last summer, and he came to Edgewood. And um, I said to him before he toured the facility, I said, I just want to let you know that I pretty much know that I have the best nursing home administrator position worldwide, and I want to tell you why. The, the why is because there's just not a finer person than Pat Ramsey, I mean, there just isn't, period. Miriam Pelletier, our director of nurses, and I, I just couldn't even imagine doing this job without her. She's incredible. Our medical director, uh, Sarah McDuffie, came on board by a kind of a strange twist of fate, but one that un- benefited Edgewood immensely, probably about three or four years ago. At that point, when she came on, in my own mind, I officially declared myself as having the best position. And when Dr. Thomas came, knowing that he had experience, you know, in other nursing homes. I told him that. And we toured Edgewood, and I introduced him to the people that I had referenced. And as we were leaving, or he was leaving that day, he looked at me and he said, you're right. I I just want you to know I can officially also declare you have it. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Absolutely. So what I know is it could never be like this anywhere else, because it just, it couldn't. I, is that just luck, or is that a culture that Patty and you have worked towards? Or um, I'm going to actually quote Patty on that. Okay. I'm going to quote her because she was interviewed a few years ago for an article about this very thing. And one of the quotes that really stayed with me that, that she said is, um, you know, it may have taken a number of years to kind of get where we are with our management team and so forth. But her words were, what she hopes is that that wasn't by mistake, that that was through, you know, hard work, deliberation, you know, thoughtful thought process about, you know, who was in the right position and so forth. Um, the other part of that is just because Edgewood is Edgewood, we're independently owned. Um, Patty's here every single day. That type of uh, system is really one of a last of a dying breed in long-term care. So yeah. for that reason, I think it couldn't be replicated. And I've not worked in another nursing home. I've not worked for a corporation. What I know is there are positives and negatives to each kind of scenario. What I think works for us here at Edgewood is that closeness to our client, the fact that we can be very nimble when we're making decisions, that what I know at the end of the day is that Patty's motivation in owning the facility is only ever to do right by the elders. There's not a personal interest in personally getting ahead, which you know, yes, we're running a business and we have to always make sure that we're running the business in a sound way financially. And also, that is also done in only the most ethical, 
highest integrity uh, way that you know I know I can feel really good about when sometimes we have to make hard financial decisions what I know is that they're always done for all of the right reasons and not to say that they're not in other settings they probably are too I think just having that closeness with the owner the operations there I, I think it probably has a different feel okay. um, you know when you know if we have to make hard decisions like going on a wage freeze and I have the owner of the facility sitting next to me in delivering that message to the staff I think that's a different statement than if that decision was made out of state by other people do you see what I mean mm -hmm. it's the same decision but it's just different right that's all sure well, it comes with a different kind of cultural it just effect, does right? yeah I don't think you can there's just no way around it it just does so you have you have six types of service mm -hmm. uh, that I was looking at on your website mm -hmm. I thought maybe we'd walk through each sure. of those quickly yeah, sure. kind of, so we get a sense of for those people who are not familiar with my sense is these are common service lines for long-term care but mm -hmm. for folks who are not familiar with sure. long-term care organizations I thought we'd start with talking about short-stay rehab mm -hmm. what is that so uh, short-stay rehab is really for a person who's had some type of an acute event that has landed them in the hospital Typically speaking, it's you know a, a, a straightforward joint replacement. Somebody's gone into the hospital, whether they've fallen or whether it's a pre-planned, you know, hip replacement or a knee replacement, and they need to come to a facility like Edgewood to get back up on their feet and go home. And so, um, the short-term piece of that, you know, can be anywhere from one week to a month, you know, depending on the situation. But um, more often than not, the person's coming for intense rehab, nursing care, and then they're going home. Okay. So uh, let's say I knew in advance mm -hmm. I wanted I needed to get a hip replacement. Mm -hmm. I might get my surgery done at Exeter, yep. and then before I even go in for that, I might have picked mm -hmm. from amongst the various long-term care facilities mm -hmm. that offer short-stay mm -hmm. rehab where I want to go Correct. and be discharged to from the hospital mm -hmm. to exactly. And, you, and so then you do what with me? Let's say I got a yep. hip replacement. So what you're going to come in. At the, you know, first day is always really intense. You know, you've got your nursing assessments, your rehab evaluations and so forth and then basically a plan of care would be developed you know with you typically speaking in that case you know nursing would be responsible for sort of the overall care management medications you know interfacing with the doctors pain management that kind of thing um, but your primary focus is probably going to be rehab getting back up on your feet Edgewood has our own in-house rehab department so all of our employees are Edgewood employees as opposed to contracted and so um, a person would be uh, receiving physical and occupational therapy anywhere you know from a couple of hours to many hours in a day depending on the specific diagnosis and need and ability to participate um, we also have speech therapy if that's appropriate for an individual but your days um, pretty well are full yeah. you know they're full with um, receiving therapy and then recovering you know people are tired uh, how does, how, does, how does Edgewood get compensated? Is so that we, also like on a DRG kind of program or is it a daily fee? Or? It's a good question also. So we are um, on a prospective payment system and so basically what that means is we have assessments that we complete for our residents. That's a, a standardized tool. It's a federal tool, the minimum data set. We refer to it as the MDS. There are regulatory compliance issues with completing the MDS and the development of a care plan and so forth that are separate from reimbursement but they use the same tool also for reimbursement. And so we complete that tool and then a person's care is summarized in one of, I believe, 44 different um, resource utilization groups. 
and um, we are paid a different rate based on the resource, the rugs, okay. rugs grouping. Okay. And so theoretically speaking, they're looking at that assessment that we've completed. They're summarizing the care needs into one, you know, 44 categories, and with the, each category is a different rate that would then, you know, compensate us for all of the resource, you know, that's going into caring for that person. Okay. And then that MDS is completed at different intervals, which equates to different periods of time that we've reimbursed. Okay. So the other part of that is that's, uh, just to clarify that that's for a Medicare recipient, um, which is, you know, by and large, the bulk of the residents coming in are covered under the Medicare program. However, I would also say that that's also been a big change over the years. Um, we have more and more managed care companies that we're working with, more and more Medicare replacement uh, plans that we're working with, um, and also just additional Medicare regulations that can impact a person's ability to access coverage. And so part of what we do within our facility, but all throughout all long-term care skilled nursing facilities, is to try to have a really good handle on the Medicare guidelines and what, co- you know, what will allow a person to be covered and what won't allow a person to be covered. And I have found over the last I don't know, three or four years, that's just all becoming more complicated. As a result of changes to the, coming from the ACA? Coming from, not so much the ACA, I think, although it probably all really goes together because I think it's all about cost containment. Mm -hmm. And so Medicare has initiated just additional audits, you know, for lack of a better term. When we accept somebody under the Medicare program, we are expected to know what the Medicare guidelines are and to know when a person should be on Medicare and when a person should come off of Medicare. We're responsible for for interpreting that and delivering that information to the beneficiary. Um, If Medicare pays us, Medicare also has the ability to go back, request a chart review to see if we got it right. If we didn't get it right, Medicare takes that money back. That's been always there that they have the ability to do that, but they've really heightened Um, the frequency with which they're looking at that. And so in the past few years, I found myself having to really become more involved with appealing, you know, Medicare decisions and understanding the guidelines in a different way than I had before. Okay. You also have listed skilled nursing. How Mm -hmm. is skilled nursing different than short-stay rehab? It's really basically the same. Okay. Um, So when you qualify for coverage under Medicare, you cover you you are able to be covered either for a skilled nursing need or a skilled rehab need, okay. or both. Okay. And so we do have people here who aren't um, able to participate in therapy, who are still able to access their Medicare benefit because their skilled nursing needs qualify them. A simple example would be somebody who has a wound, you know, that's requiring a daily dressing change of a certain stage. Okay. Um, or IV antibiotics or something like that. Okay, and they'd be admitted here because mm-hmm. they couldn't get the care at home. Correct. They didn't have a home environment where that would be yep. conducive to having that care done. Correct, or it's not practical to deliver that care at home. You know, if a person, for instance, with a, a wound, maybe they need the wound changed three times a day, the oh. dressing. Oh. That's not something that's going to be able to be done at home. Just so much to be done. Yeah. It just makes more sense to just do it exactly. in a facility rather than trying to. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So part of what we have to do, too, is to balance those costs. So when we accept a person under the Medicare program, Medicare, when we went to the resource utilization groups, also included more items related to a person's care that we are now financially responsible for. And so part of what we have to do is also manage those resources. And so that has been a change, you know, over the years. You know, it had been in the past 
more of a fee-for-service. You know, so if a person was on a high-cost antibiotic, that wasn't necessarily an issue because we would get that reimbursed, whether, you know, it was immediately or a few months from now, we still would get the money. Now, not so much. It's, is it considered rolled into the... It's rolled in. Yes, okay. it's absolutely rolled in. So, you know, again, when I say staying on top of the Medicare kind of guidelines, that's sort of included in that for me is, you know, the cost of certain items, you know, what care needs a, a person's going to, to need, you know, while they're here and our ability to balance um, acuity levels, you know, within the building to make sure that we're also going to be operating in a financially sound way. So you have um, short-term rehab, skilled nursing, and then you list long-term care. Mm -hmm. What is yep. what's long-term care as opposed to say short-stay rehab? Yep. So long-term care would really be when a person has made a decision that Edgewood is going to become more their living environment. Um, and so we have, you know, we have uh, two long-term care units with about 50 beds apiece. And we have one short-term unit, you know, um, has the capacity for 50, but we really run about 35 because we've made so many private rooms um, over the years. And so um, the bulk of our business actually is long-term care. However, the I would say, let me rephrase that, the majority of the residents who are here on any given day are here for long-term care, but the volume of intensity with regard to the services we provide tends to be around the short-term population because it's so... Um, because it's more abbreviated, it's more intense. But most of the people coming into the facility being admitted come in through our short-term unit. And then um, sometimes with the idea that they'll need long-term placement after a short-term stay, and sometimes, um, you know, for whatever reason, they just aren't able to return to their previous living arrangement. And so people then convert to long-term care. And so we have an area in the building that more specializes in dementia care. Okay. And an area in the building, and I talk very much in general terms. Um, simply put, we do have residents with dementia throughout the whole building, um, but just more um, services concentrated for that population in one area. And one area of the building where more of our residents are, are more alert and oriented, are able to let us know what their needs are. Okay. And so the both, but both are, are enrolled in your long-term care. Both are long-term care services. Correct. Okay. Yes. You also have end-of-life care and respite care. Can we do. Talk about those yeah, sure we do. So I'll talk about respite first. Respite care has been a wonderful service for people who are living in the community who um, just need a break, you know, for a variety of different reasons. Um, so, you know, maybe a caretaker who's taking care of a loved one at home who's, you know, uh, things are going along very well at home, but who may need medical care of their own. We've taken people in respite while somebody else goes into the hospital for surgery. Maybe going on a vacation, maybe just need a break or have family coming in. One of my favorite examples of respite was very a new experience for us um, just this month. Um, we have a gentleman here for respite. He's actually from, I believe, Arizona. And he's come out to visit family in this area, but needs care. And so they contacted us to see if he could be admitted to our facility while he was here visiting them, which was just a little different. Okay. So respite meaning more short term, you know, more traditionally it's to give somebody who's a caretaker at home a break, you know, while we're providing respite. Um, but in that case, it was, you know, maybe a little bit of a vacation for somebody coming to visit. Oh, interesting. Family. It was, yeah, okay. yeah, it was kind okay. of interesting. He's here for a month. Okay. 
Um, and how does one pay for, is respite typically a out-of-pocket kind of? Typically speaking, respite is out-of-pocket. Um, we also contract with the VA. Okay. Um, and so, you know, for that particular gentleman, the VA um, is involved and the VA is, is paying for a portion of his, his stay. The state also has a respite program through, I believe, their HICBIC, Home and Community-Based Waiver. Okay. We've not participated in that of recent years, um, but we have in the past. We also offer respite through a couple of different hospices that we contract with. And so, again, for a person on hospice at home with a care, caretaker and that ter- caretaker needs some type of a break, whether for their own health or whether just because, and then um, the hospice would be paying the respite. Okay. And then the other element related to hospice mm-hmm. is end-of-life care. End-of-life care, which I would say is... Uh, an area of real specialty, I think, for Edgewood. Um, and, and I would say, you know, probably throughout long-term care for maybe obvious reasons. You know, it's certainly something that we deal with on an ongoing basis. And um, I feel as an industry something that we do very well, both caring for individuals at end of life and also their families um, at end of life. And so it's not uncommon for us to have a referral for somebody specifically for end of life care you know, whether they're coming directly from the hospital or home, you know, in a home situation, or certainly one of our own residents who has maybe lived here for, you know, a year or two years who is now coming to the end of their life. However, you know, that transpires. End-of-life care is something that we do very well. Dr. McDuffie, our medical director, um, also happens to be the palliative care director at Portsmouth Hospital, so naturally kind of brings that uh, philosophy and that carryover, you know, uh, from the acute setting, you know, here, you know, to our facility. We contract with two hospices um, and are available to accept their patients, you know, again, if they're at home and they just need uh, more 24-hour care, or if there are current residents who are then become hospice-appropriate, and we work very closely with those agencies. Okay. Related to kind of your services, uh, I asked you this specifically on a couple of them, but payment. It's got to be a complicated issue mm-hmm. because Medicare, most of your, many, many of your patients are Medicare mm-hmm. eligible, mm-hmm. but Medicare has a limit on the number of days mm-hmm. um, that it will pay. Mm-hmm. So what is that limit? Mm-hmm. And how do you how does work that with go? That? Sure. So the limit is 100 days. Okay. And so what we generally tell people is that almost nobody gets 100 days. And it's, we find ourselves almost in a position of continual education around the Medicare benefit. And part of it is very black and white, and part of it is a little bit gray. And so oftentimes people hear 100 days Medicare benefit, and they assume they're getting 100 days of coverage. And again, almost nobody gets 100 days. Within those 100 days, you have to meet certain criteria to be eligible for reimbursement under Medicare. The black and white part of it is that an individual has to have had a three-day hospital stay within 30 days of admission to a skilled nursing facility. So if you haven't had three overnights as an inpatient, not as an observation patient, but as an inpatient, then it's a definite no. You can't access your Medicare benefit. So if you've had three nights as an inpatient, then it's a maybe. And then you look at the clinical presentation of that person to determine if they would meet Medicare guidelines. And Medicare will pay you know, for persons uh, participating in rehabilitation and uh, for skilled nursing care. And that's where it can get a little bit gray um, because then, you know, what is that? You know, if a person needs the daily intervention of a licensed nurse to carry out whatever plan of care is in place, 
then again, they might qualify for Medicare, and but not always. So we have found, to a degree, in the past two or three years, that's been a little bit of a moving target. Uh, and, uh, and also with the introduction of managed Medicare, um, we found ourselves in a position where we believe Medicare would cover, you know, X, Y, or Z, but the managed, managed Medicare company is saying no, and that's been an interesting dynamic for us. And the reason we've come to really delve into this a little bit further, the two reasons, one is Medicare has beefed up those audits, so we've had to not only provide records, but really fight, you know, for why we feel this person met Medicare criteria. That has, for lack of a better word, it's made us really understand those in a more thorough way. Okay. The other part of that is just with that consumer, you know, maybe being more knowledgeable or, you know, searching out answers, um, we have found sometimes having to just re-educate that consumer as to exactly what the Medicare benefit really is. And it's not uncommon for us to be in a meeting with a family member saying, no, I was told I my father gets 100 days, and what do you mean? Right. You know, and, and so there's some difficult conversations that that happen, you know, here. Yeah. Um, and so, so if Medicare doesn't pay, mm-hmm. what so then what happens? So yeah. then what happens basically in a nutshell is a person either pays privately to stay here or they need to make applications to the state for assistance. And so, again, with that in a nutshell, the, the quick and easy way of saying how that's determined is in New Hampshire. There are two criteria that have to be met in order to qualify for state assistance in a nursing home. One is medical. So it's not like just anyone off the street can just check in and then the state pays. You have to meet certain medical criteria for the state to say, okay, you're a nursing home appropriate. That has to be met. And then the other is financial. And both over the years have gotten a little bit murky, but more so in the financial area. And so financially speaking, in New Hampshire, a person can have no more than $2,500 in liquid assets in order to qualify for Medicaid. So again, quick and dirty. If you've got $50,000 in the bank, you have to spend down the $50,000 to be no more than $2,500. And then you might, capitalize, bolded, exclamation point, might be eligible financially for Medicaid. And so the might encompasses that um, evaluation that the state does in terms of a person's personal finances. There's a five-year look back and they... um, If you were giving away assets... Correct, exactly. And that's where I would say over the last at least five years, and it seems like every year even more so, that has become more complicated. And so... How about something like a couple and mm-hmm. one of the, the one of the spouses gets admitted, yeah. clearly needs to be in long-term care, mm-hmm. they own a house that's worth yep. $200,000. Yep. What happens? What happens then? So based on our experience, the state does not have an interest in impoverishing the spouse, what we would call the at-home spouse. So they really wouldn't go after the house or expect that the person sell the house, which is an often or common fear. I was just speaking to a family member a few days ago. Her dad is here. Mom lives in the house. There's co-ownership. And she's fearful about her father staying here for the state coming and taking their house. So while we can't say firmly no, what we can say is our experience is the state doesn't do that. I don't even believe necessarily that they've been attaching a person's house. But I could be wrong on that. Um, But that fear of you know, mom's going to have to move, we have to sell the house and liquidate. That's definitely not our experience. 
um, our experiences that our state wants to keep that at-home spouse whole. You know, they don't want that person being on the street. And they would then look at more of the, the liquid assets. And that's, again, been our experience. And so our experience also is that they would look at that and make a decision about what's the mom's asset, what's the dad's asset. And then the dad, if the dad is the one that's here, would spend down only that portion that's determined to be his asset. Reasonably his asset. Exactly. And so we have often found that that fear going into it isn't always necessary. You know, I, I don't know if it's just New Hampshire, but I feel like New Hampshire is pretty reasonable yeah. that way. Um, they have definitely beefed up that five-year look back, and that's where over time um, I think things have gotten much more complicated because... I don't know if it's just a sign of just the, you know, the, the economy the, you know, that we're all experiencing or, or whatnot. But we've definitely been um, in situations where the state has looked at transfers of assets, even innocent transfers of assets, and I'll talk about that in a second, and determined them to be ineligible for Medicaid. So now we have a person living here. They have no money to pay. They've, let's just say they've spent down. They're applying to the state. There's nothing available cash-wise. They apply to the state, and the state determined that three years ago, this is a, based on a true story, three years ago, that person gave $10,000 to each of their grandchildren to go to college. Now that's an inappropriate transfer of asset. And now we've got, I'm making up these numbers, but now we have $50,000 that the state has said is an inappropriate transfer of asset. They impose a penalty period, which means this is the period of time that the individual is ineligible for Medicaid. So for $50,000, it might be, it would be a year, I would say, because they convert the 50,000 to an average Medicaid rate okay. in the state, mm -hmm. and then uh, convert that to a length of time. So I would say that's at least a year that the person has no money and is ineligible for Medicaid. And so now we as a nursing facility, what do we do with that? because the person's in our care. We can discharge a person involuntarily based on an inability to pay. So we can do that. We can pursue that, I should say, because there's also a secondary reg that says you can't discharge a person without an appropriate discharge plan. So on the one hand, you have a person living in your building who needs to be living with you. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. I mean, let's face it, nobody's checking into a nursing home unless they need to be in a nursing home. And they have no ability to pay do you discharge that person? What's the appropriate discharge plan? Where, where do we go from here? And so that's a tough situation. <laughs> I don't have the right answer. I mean, we've been in a couple of situations that thankfully at the end of the day ended up working out, but you know, you're always worried about how that's going to be working out. Mm. Do you have a lot of bad debt as a result of I those think sorts of situations? We can. I mean, a lot. I don't know how to determine a lot, but mm. we have... Um, it's not infrequent, you know, that you have a situation like that. I can, you know, right now. That's got to be a common occurrence yeah. for long-term care facilities. Yeah, it's not uncommon. Statewide, you would have a room full of people talking about the subject if you wanted to talk about the subject. Okay. Yeah. And different, you know, if you combined us, it would definitely be a lot. I think the, the hard part is a, a nursing home can get into real financial trouble very quickly. I don't mean, when I say financial trouble, I mean with a specific individual. I mean the, the debt can climb very quickly with an individual because the, you know, the average, you know, rate, private pay rate for a nursing home is, you know, say anywhere from nine to $10,000 a month. 
So even though a month may not seem like a long period of time, you know, there's you could be ten thousand dollars in debt at the end of a month, at the end of six months, which isn't that uncommon for the state to take that long to determine these kinds of issues, particularly when there's a trust involved. You know, now you've got sixty thousand dollars worth of debt. That's a lot of money, <laughs> and so it's hard. On the one hand, you know, we're all in this business because we care and we want to be providing care. On the other hand, what I also know is. You know, we have a staff that we need to make sure are able to continue to get raises, and you know, we we also want to make sure that we're running things in a, a a way so that we're not overcharging. You know, private pay people to make up for this right. shortfall, and it can be difficult you sure. know, to have those conversations or people who don't quite understand the fact that Medicare doesn't cover forever. You either have to pay or apply for Medicaid. There's no in between. You know, there's no unless you have a long-term care insurance policy. There is no other alternative to to paying the bill, you know, and I think it's it's sometimes hard for people to realize that there isn't an insurance plan, federal insurance plan that's just going to cover long-term care. Yeah. So you you bring up a point I wanted to ask you about, and that is long-term care insurance. Do you see a lot of people coming with that, or is it primarily state uh, state payment that you're seeing? Yeah, now? we don't see a lot of long-term care insurance okay. policies. Why not? I mean, I don't know. we're getting old. We, we all kind of, you know, we kind of count on getting I old. I don't know the answer to that, yeah. except to say I think people just put it out of their minds and think I'll never okay. need. Yeah, we definitely don't see a lot. Okay. Um, when we do, sometimes they're wonderful and they would appear to cover the full, you know, cost of care. And other times, uh, we've had situations where they cover more than Medicaid, but not quite the private pay rate. And then you're sort of in this in-between stage. So you have to be really careful when you buy them. You need to make sure it includes a proper inflation factor and, you know, the right kind of coverage that you might need. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's amazing to me sometimes that people who really did excellent planning, like this family that just the other day showed me their insurance plan. I was, I was super impressed, you know, at um, the coverage and the daily rate. And you know, I don't know what the answer is there. Okay. What other big trends in do you see in long-term care in the 20 plus years you've been doing? What do you what do you see on the horizon that's going to change? Well, the way I think things are done? I think there's real hope for our industry to be just when I say proving our worth, what I we are we know our worth to the healthcare system. Um, what I think is really exciting is that other entities like the hospital or managed care companies or state agencies I think are going to be looking at the value that skilled nursing, long-term care provides in the continuum differently. And when I say that, what I mean is with the changing reimbursement, you know, if the accountable care organizations, you know, become more fully in this area, I think our value in that continuum will be really more significant because we can offer really excellent service at a really great price. And relative we've, to the hospital. Relative to the hospital, relative to, you know, acute rehab and and not to say, you know, I don't want to make it sound like we're a replacement. We're definitely not a replacement for certainly not the hospital, certainly not acute rehab per se. There's definitely gray area, you know, in certain settings where a person could go to one place versus another. And I think the value um, that we can provide, I think it will be really significant. So I would see that really growing. So I think there's there's real hope there. I mean, sometimes we feel like the, you know, the black sheep, so to speak, in the healthcare continuum. And I think our value to that is really changing. I think people's perceptions of nursing homes 
are, are really changing. I think people are looking at us differently from a quality standpoint, from a, a, a need standpoint, and certainly from a value standpoint. Okay. Uh, let's shift gears a bit and talk specifically about leadership. Yeah. And kind of, as the administrator, and as, as kind of one of the two senior leaders mm -hmm. of, yeah. of the organization, what, how do you set the culture? How do you, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you try to maintain that special culture that you have found here mm -hmm. that, that attracted you and that has mm -hmm. kept you all this time? Mm -hmm. and now you're in a position to you know kind of be the guardian of that. Right. Well, I think um, I would say above anything else, I think leading by example is is I think what Edgewood I like to think what Edgewood does well. I guess what I mean by that is um, I hope that if you ask the staff that they would say that they could see that we love being here too. And I think that's just really important that that that, that passion, you know, for caring for the older adult is evident in, in all of our leadership. And I think staff would, I hope staff would say that. I think they would. I think that really always being mindful of that, I think being respectful of all of the different positions that we have here. I, there was a staff member once who said it so beautifully and she said, Something along the lines of every single position that we have here has really the same level of importance. Um, what we have differently is a different level of authority. And that, I thought, really summed it up because, you know, at the end of the day, to our residents, each and every position here is, is critical. Like, there's not one position here that's not critical to the delivery of, of care. And I think respecting that is, I guess, the way we've operated. And so how we do that is knowing our staff. I think um, both Patty and I are also licensed nursing assistants. And so not that we work on the floor. I don't want to make it sound like I'm taking an assignment, you know, because certainly I'm not doing that. I would do that um, if I needed to do that and have done that many times um, in the distant past, many times over, taking an assignment because we needed to. But I think being able to help in a way that demonstrates this is what's important here. When I answer a call light, you know, if a resident needs to go to the bathroom, as an example, doing, you know, helping, you know, that person in that moment and showing the staff that, that this is what we do, you know. Yeah. I, I guess I'd like to think that's what's worked for us here to just, again, be leading by example in, in terms of that, you know. Um, I think in terms of communication and, you know, I. I guess I've, I've heard the director of nurses say this many times over, you know, you can always be kind in how we are, even if we're dealing with a difficult matter, again, if it's a difficult issue with a family member and their finances or whether it's a performance issue with an employee, we can always be kind. There's always room for that. And, and I would say we have also adopted a coaching approach to communication many years ago through a grant that we received, well, I shouldn't say we received, we've benefited from through an organization that we were working with. And I think that has helped promote that type of communication between staff members and between you know supervisors and staff. Okay. What do you think is different about leading in a long-term care environment than perhaps what you might have seen or hear about in other healthcare environments? I think Probably, again, this is what I imagine it to be, is that within long-term care, it's a very flat organization. And so, you know, if you're asked, you know, who's responsible for quality improvement? Well, you know, you're looking at her. You know, who's responsible? You know, there's, you're responsible for a lot. I would imagine in another type of organization, certainly at the insurance company, I mean, they had a whole entire department that did nothing but quality improvement. 
that's a great thing. You know, there are times I'm envious of that, you know, and other times I'm really glad that's not the case because I love to be involved in a lot of different areas. But I would imagine that's probably one of the big differences. You have to wear many, many hats and all of our, our leaders wear many hats, but certainly in my position, um, in the owner's position, there are just multiple hats that you can wear in the course of a day. And for me, that's what I really love about this job. And I, I, think it is also kind of translated into the type of care that we provide and the different types of residents that we have here. I feel like my job is a little bit eclectic, you know, at times, the types of people that are here residing here. It's a, it's a great variety of, of people too, you know, so, so maybe there's a parallel there, you know, that just works. But that's what I would imagine. Let me ask you quickly about, about mentorship. Does Edgewood have a formal mentorship program mm-hmm. that um, new people come in and mm-hmm. get assigned to? Okay. That's a good question. Um, so we do within the LNA population, we have a peer mentor program. So people, um, LNAs who have been trained, you know, gone through additional training and received an internal, you know, certification to be a peer mentor, new people coming in connected with that person to learn about Edgewood and then learn also about the job, you know, exactly what they'll, they'll be doing day to day. Okay. How much did it, did mentors matter to you in coming up? Mm-hmm. That's uh, a great question too. I would say a lot. I mean, even just talking to you today, I can, you know, I can hear myself say, you know, I asked this person for advice or went back to that person. I would say a lot. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm a person who has definitely sought out advice from people. I just respect their opinion and um, help me just form my own. You know, if I have a decision that I need to make professionally or. Um, or other, and certainly here, you know, feeling like I've been in an environment that I've been able to, to really learn from the people that I work with, and that crosses all all levels. You know, I mean, like to say levels in the organization. I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I feel that I'm continuously learning, too, from our staff and how they handle situations also. You know, it's, it's a two-way street, I guess is what I want to say. But definitely mentors have meant a great deal to me. Do you find, uh, are you currently mentoring anyone, both either formally or informally? Do you have young people who are interested in mm-hmm. maybe being an administrator? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, or? that's a good question, too. So we've um, had interns here from health management over the years, and that's always fun. Um, and we've also had people who um, have just independently reached out, and we have somebody right now, and a, a, I want to say boy. He's really not a boy. He's um, a young man. Um, and he's going to be finishing up his last semester at UNH, and he has an interest. He he loves this population also. Sent me an email. Would you consider just an internship, not a formal internship, just because he has an interest in? And I'm thinking that he's a person who is thinking about his future and getting you know resume and experience and so forth. So he out of the blue emailed. I said, sure, I'd love to meet with you. Met with him. Really liked him said, you know what, again, Edgewood can be that blank canvas. If somebody wants to come in and is willing to put in their own time and shows initiative, you know, we're all for it. So he came in at the beginning of the summer, and to his credit, he came in with the idea that this would just be on his own time, unpaid. And, you know, because he showed promise and initiative, we have projects that he can be working on for us that are hugely helpful to us this summer, so he's now being paid. and doing some work for us, and we're already talking about what about, you know, is this something, you know, Craig can be doing, you know, yeah. is this something that might be good for him? And I, just yesterday, one of our departments had, department heads said, you know, I was thinking 
I'm going to need XYZ help. I've talked to Craig. He might be interested in the fall. Maybe we could, you know, work something out. And to me, that's like great. It, I, I love it when, I love it when young people show interest like that and are willing to just put themselves out there because something will come up, you know, and it's the same thing with our staff. You know, when we know somebody's interested in, you know, pursuing a different opportunity, it might not be today that we have that different opportunity, but it might be two weeks from today. And when we know, we're like, oh, what about, you know, this person or that person, they showed an interest and let's give it to them. You know, let's give them an opportunity. And I will tell you, I hope, I hope that I never forget that somebody gave me that opportunity also. And I, I do try to remember that. I even I feel very grateful that I was given that opportunity here as well. And again, I, I hope I don't forget that. You know, I hope if I do, somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, wait a minute, way back when you were the one who was asking for that. And so, yeah, so we, we love to have people and um, you know, if we can be a mentor or help guide a person, we're certainly all for it. So let me close on this final question, and that is for a young person thinking about a career in health, mm-hmm. why should they think about a career in long-term care? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what kind of opportunities are there mm-hmm. for someone, say, coming out of HMP mm-hmm. or another uh, program like it? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say first and foremost, I, I would not see long-term care going anywhere. I think we're going to change, but I don't think we're going to go away. So for a career choice, I think it's an outstanding career choice. I think that, um, again, what I really love about my job is the variety of the issues and what I do. And coming out of HMP, um, I know I was worried about being locked in a, you know, being typecast, you know, in a specific role. For a person who likes that, that's great. You know, there is so many opportunities in healthcare for you know, a specific type of role. For me, that didn't work. You know, I didn't like that. I like, I like having a broad, a, you know, broadness to my knowledge about the company and what's going on. Um, so for a person who likes that, this couldn't even be a better choice. For a person who also really likes being around an older adult, um, you know, again, it just doesn't get any better. I mean, there, there really isn't a day that goes by that you can't make a difference to somebody, you know, and again, it might just be really minor, but it matters, you know, and, and when I think about my own life and, you know, you spend a lot of time at work, you know, and I honestly can't imagine going to a job that I did not absolutely love every day, you know, being the mother of three children and being a working mother, coming to a place that I also love. If I was coming to a place I didn't love, that would be really hard for me. And so it's about lifestyle, it's about balance, it's about, it's bigger than a job. And, and I think there's, you know, there's just sort of this fit for every person. And I think one of the things I say in an interview process here, when I'm interviewing a person, I usually interview a person before they're touring the facility. And I say to them, when you tour Edgewood, what I want you to do is take a very long look around look with a critical eye, pay attention to how you feel. When you walk onto our dementia unit, I want you to think about how you felt when you walked onto that unit. And when you go home tonight, when you're talking about your time at Edgewood with whoever you're talking about, how this day went, I want you to ask yourself, is this a place that I could see myself coming to every day? I'm saying that, and I'll say this to the interviewee, I'm saying that with a real high degree of confidence that people are going to really like what they see. And if people don't, 
they need to not pursue an application here. And it's okay. You know, it's really right. okay. People need to love what they're doing and they need to love where they're doing it. And otherwise it just shows in everything that you do. And when you're working with an older adult, it's so important that you love what you're doing because even if that older adult isn't necessarily able to say or tell you that they can tell you don't love what you're doing, they can feel it. And, and I guess I just really feel like they really deserve people who really love to be here. And so, I guess with that, you know, for, for a person in HMP who has that need maybe to, to balance out, you know, the business kind of side of, of operations with that higher mission as to why you're doing it, which I think was my issue with the health insurance plan. It's sort of, you know, I could do that job. I did that job just fine, but it was, it didn't fulfill that other side of me. And for me, I needed that. For somebody else who needs that, I just honestly think there's just not a better career choice than long-term care. So um, I would just highly recommend it. I would also say you may have to put in a little bit of your own time um, because of that AIT and do that when you're in a position where you can do it. So um, when I, what I mean by that is before you have a lot of long-term debt and you're worried about working for free, so to speak. But for a person who's just willing to just put themselves out there a little bit, there's huge opportunity. So... I guess with that, I, I, again, I just couldn't recommend it enough, but for the right person. I, you, you absolutely have to love being being around the older adult, typically the older adult. That's great advice. Thank you so much yeah. for your time today. I You're welcome. It. Welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.